If you are uh, visiting this morning or knew that you uh, would see us on this passage this morning, and I just want you to understand that this is the way we work through and are able to arrive at all sorts of different topics of importance to the church by going through expositionally through each book and trying to understand what God has set before us, not to cherry pick what seems easier or what is our own special interest, but to try to see what God has written in his word. It has been a busy week of spiritual battle, battle against our flesh, battle against the temptations of the world, and the craftiness and evilness of the devil. I've talked with several of you of of difficulties, conflicts, challenges. I've had similar things in my own personal life. We're at war in this world in which we live, and, and part of it is against the devil, and part of it is against our own flesh. And then we have these temptations of the world around us. But we have come together here this Sunday morning, and we actually have come from several different counties, communities. We've come to praise and worship Yahweh. The Lord God, the Creator. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He is eternal. He is our Lord and Savior. He is our Good Shepherd. And part of our worship of this God is in studying His God breathed word that was given to us in the pages of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent. To present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As we study this word this morning, we want to rightly divide it. We want to understand what what Paul intended for us to get from this. What he intended for the church in Ephesus and what we can apply and place in our own lives. We need to remember the context. This letter, 1 Timothy It was written by who? Paul. Paul is an apostle. What is an apostle? A sent one. He is a sent one from God. Paul has written. And he has penned to his spiritual son, Timothy. Now Timothy is not twiddling his thumbs, relaxing in Ephesus in a new pastoral position. He is waging war to restore godliness to a church in a wild and prosperous port city of Ephesus. Paul had labored in teaching the word of God in Ephesus for well over two years, personally there. Now, however, that church is in the middle of a battle for its life. Sadly, some of Timothy's strongest opposition is actually from within the existing church leadership. Even church elders appear to be teaching false doctrine and stirring up dissension. So far in this letter, Paul has warned Timothy of false teachers in that church. He has reminded him of the glorious saving gospel of Christ Jesus. He has called him to spiritual warfare and he has exhorted him to faithful and earnest prayer. Paul now gives Timothy instruction. And this instruction is considered by the vast majority of commentators to be direction and correction, direction and correction needed when the Ephesian church gathered for public worship. 
Contained in these verses this morning are principles and specifics necessary to lead the church in worship of God, not only in first century Ephesus, but even in our very meeting time today. So let's pray and ask God to teach us from His Word. Heavenly Father, we do come to You. We've had a full morning already of of praise and thanksgiving, of sorrow and and difficulty of lifting these things up to You. Uh, Our Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals, our our Good Shepherd, our Jehovah Jireh who provides, uh, the omnipotent Lord of Sabaoth, of the heavenly hosts. Father, You are all these things and You've listened to us and we thank You not because of our eloquence or even our sincerity, but because You have loved us that You would listen to us and care for us. And Father, we now come into this point where we are looking at this living Word of God that you have said is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, it may be sharp, but we are often dull. And we ask that you would speak to us and give us clarity on these things this morning. Lord, open our minds and hearts to know your will and to walk in obedience with it. In your name we pray. Amen. We begin here with instruction to men for prayer in worship. Paul begins in verse 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Paul commends men pray. He commands them to pray without exception in every place. And he commands them to do it with a sincere, consistent life to back that up. Having no broken relationships or wrong attitudes towards others. You see, after exhorting the broad scope of prayer in verses 1 through 7, as Phil taught us uh, two weeks ago, he said that prayer is to be made for all men. Now Paul goes to the heart of the men who pray. Men in all places of worship are to pray. First of all, it says, lifting up holy hands. Uh, It's the Greek word hosios, hosios hands, which means a life unpolluted, a life unstained by evil. The emphasis here is not on the posture of the hands, but on the heart that pumps blood to those hands. If you look at posture in the scriptures, you're going to see a wide array of postures of prayer. Everything from hands lifted up to heads bowed to falling flat on your face, kneeling, standing. You will see all sorts of postures of prayer. It's interesting that, uh, that you really don't read about a time where it describes men folding their hands and closing their eyes. But that's what we commonly do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But posture is not the issue that we're talking about here. Praying men are to have faith and a good conscience. We read about that in verse 18. Their talk must match their walk. A prerequisite to prayer is a complete absence of hypocrisy. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who, who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. James, chapter 5 says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Not simply effective, fervent prayer, but effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
And then it says that the men must pray without wrath and dissension. Wrath toward a brother or sister has no place in the family of God, let alone in the heart of men as he prays in a worship service. Jesus told a parable about wrath and unforgiveness, finishing with these words. You will recognize this. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. There is no room for a hard, unforgiving heart of wrath when men pray. To the church in Colossae, Paul wrote, But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language out of your mouth. In another letter expressly to the Ephesian church at a different time, he exhorted that all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. It is repeated and over and over again. Wrath has no place in our hearts, brothers. And if we are to pray, we must make sure that it is not there. But it says men are also to pray without dissension. This is clearly a problem in the Ephesian church. In 1 Timothy 1.4, it says that the false teachers were causing disputes. In chapter 6, verse 5, it speaks of the useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. So before approaching God in prayer for all other men, the godly man must seek God to rid himself of wrath and argumentative heart towards anyone. Before we pray, we must get our heart right. This cannot go on. Jesus said you must take immediate action. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you bring your altar, excuse me, therefore if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If it wasn't wrath in your own heart, but there is the possibility of wrath of a brother towards you because of an offense you have caused, get it worked out. Some of you need to do that now. I know because of discussions and conversations. We need to be on this. I had to work this out 48 hours ago. These are essentials. It is spiritual battle. We cannot let it exist in our hearts. We cannot let it create this bitterness and hardness. And men, this goes not just for man to man here at the church, but as much, if not more so, with the wives that God has given you. 1 Peter 3 verse 7 says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. As to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life. That your prayers may not be hindered. Brothers, do not let malice, wrath, anger, dissension, hypocrisy hinder our communication with God. To render it really futile. We must have clean hearts before God. When you pray, men, do so with the foundation of consistent holy living without wrath and dissension in your heart.
The next seven verses this morning contain a very hot topic in the church today. It was hot in Ephesus in AD 60, and the temperature is no less today. All of the commentators and scholars acknowledge this. Let me read one of them's introduction describing the danger in understanding these scriptures. First of all, the danger of controversy. Few issues have brought more division in recent years than the role of women in the church. Secondly, the danger of letting culture overrule Scripture. No matter how they are understood, God's instructions for women stand against the prevailing attitude of contemporary society. A third danger, allowing church history to dictate how Scripture should be applied. A fourth, allowing personal opinion to distort our understanding of Scripture. And then lastly, the difficulties with the text itself. What do these words mean, quietly? In subjection, teach, exercise authority, the deception of Eve, saved through childbearing. We have a lot to cover. May the Holy Spirit lead us now as we dig in with verse 9. Paul writes, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. In like manner indicates that in addition to Paul's instruction for men praying in corporate worship, he also has specific instruction. Paul has specific instruction for how women are to honor God in public worship. Instructions to women for conduct and worship. Adornment. Here are instructions on appearance. Appearance in worship. Verse 9. In a similar way to the men's praying, the mark of a Christian woman shall be an outer appearance of humble beauty that does not call attention to itself because of inappropriateness, ostentatious ornamentation, or obvious cost. Now this is not saying that women must watch out for these and men can come dressed as clowns or some oddity. But this has a specific purpose. Women here, it says, are to adorn themselves. Adorn is an interesting word. It is the Greek word cosmeo. And you can guess where we get that. It's the English word cosmetic. Cosmeo means to arrange or to put in order. To make ready. Women are to prepare themselves. They are to make ready for worshiping God by wearing modest, proper, respectable clothing. Now the word clothing or apparel is a word that means not only clothing, but is the whole appearance or demeanor. Cosmeo is the opposite of chaos. So in preparing to come to worship, A woman is to give an appearance that is respectable, that is not disruptive or a distraction. Hendrickson writes, It is clear, therefore, that the apostle does not condemn the desire on the part of girls and women, a desire created in their souls by their maker, to adorn themselves to be in good taste. But if a woman's robe is to be truly such, it will be expressive of modesty and good sense. Modesty modesty 
indicates a sense of reserve. In other words, one is not trying to push the boundaries beyond what is morally decent or to show off. It's a reserve. Why? Why does she come this way? Because she is coming to worship her God. That is the foundation under all of Paul's instructions in these verses to men and to women. We come to worship God in order to praise and glorify Him. He is our Creator and King. Whether it is the prayers of the men or the appearance of the women, it is not about us when we come here. All eyes and ears and hearts and minds are to be on Him. Men, we can also be ostentatious or chaotic when we pray. Our prayers, brothers, can be showy, they can be preachy, they can be long. They can sometimes mask a heart drenched in impurity. They can be hardened with wrath and dissension toward another brother or sister in the body of Christ. Brothers, we must not let this be. Paul gives this command on prayer because of the high importance of prayer and because of the commonness of this weakness in men. This is a weakness for us. Paul is addressing now, though, a different apparent weakness with the women in the church of Ephesus. James Hurley gives warrant for Paul's concern when he describes the Ephesian culture. He writes, The sculpture and literature of the period makes it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems and gold and pearls. The courtesans wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets or pearls and gems every inch or so making them a shimmering screen of their locks, end quote. It's hard to imagine what that looked like. But here's, it's interesting that not only was this the rage for the wealthy, it also was the dress of the prostitute. George Knight writes, the reason for Paul's prohibition of elaborate hairstyles, ornate jewelry, and extremely expensive clothing becomes clear when one reads in the contemporary literature of the inordinate time, the expense, and the effort that elaborately braided hair and jewels demanded, not just as an ostentatious display, but also as the mode of dress of courtesans and harlots. By dressing in this manner, end quote, a woman communicated one of two intentions. First of all, it could be to attract attention to herself because of vanity or a sense of superiority over the average church members, many of whom, most of whom were quite poor. But they were not all, as we will see in our study of the letter to, here to Timothy. Some of them were wealthy. But here this made a distinction between them. But the second way that this dress could have impacted people was to give the impression of sexual promiscuity like a prostitute seeking the attention of men that were gathered there to worship. 
Riken adds, remember too that Ephesus was home to the goddess Artemis. Members of the Ephesian church could see the temple prostitutes loitering near the pillars of her temple. To dress in their style was tantamount to marital unfaithfulness. Now in contrast to this shameless way of dressing, Paul says in verse 10, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Demonstrating true worship. That's what we're searching for. How do we demonstrate true worship? The contrast from these flamboyant signs of the world is good works. A natural beauty of women who proclaim they love and fear God. This is specific instruction for specific women. It is not just any woman. It's those who proclaim loud and clear that they fear God. If you're going to claim Christ as Savior and Lord, this is what you should do. Now, who would consider this good works to be real beauty? That's, that's not what we see in social media, on advertisements, on the billboards, in the magazines. And we walk into a Walmart. We don't see that kind of beauty, do we? Who would consider this to be real beauty? Remember what Yahweh said to Samuel? As Samuel assessed the brothers of David for kingly potential. 1 Samuel 16. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. If we could grasp that. If we could hold fast to that. What a difference that would make. The Lord looks on the heart. We know that to be true, but we must battle our flesh, the worldly emphasis and onslaught and tidal wave, and then the devil's crafty cunningness to see things differently. The Lord looks on the heart. We are to look on the heart. Again, Riken says, if a woman wants to become beautiful to God, here is the fashion statement she ought to make. The fashion statement for the woman beautiful before God. Adorn yourself with what is proper for women who profess godliness. With good works. This provides another motivation for women as you prepare to come to public worship. Prepare yourself not only so as not to be a distraction from God. But to actually be pleasing to God. Now what does that look like? And, and I'm sure some of you are thinking, we need more specifics. We need to see this directly. This is a hard issue. And, and it does vary from culture to culture to a degree. But here's some specifics. And this is what we're looking for, these good works. Paul gives them in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. Having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, which we're talking about serving, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Now that is not exclusive, nor is it comprehensive, but it gives a pretty good idea of what God looks at, doesn't it? Old or young, 
married or single as women, you can participate in, in many of these particular good works that Paul singles out. These are attributes of beauty. The Apostle Peter echoed Paul's instruction in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Paul then moves from the appearance of worshiping women to their discipleship. From appearance to discipleship. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. The command for a woman here is to learn in worship. When we see this, most people's hair comes up on their neck and the hackles come up because they look at the last part of that and, oh, in silence. What Paul is commanding here is radical in the time in which he lived. He says, provide opportunity for women to learn of God. Learning characterized by quietness and orderliness. This is very understated and misunderstood today. Paul is commanding that a woman be discipled. That she learn. The ESV says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The NASB says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. The word learn there is manthano. It means to understand, to grasp. It, it's the Greek word from which we get the term disciple. Implied in this, in this statement, is that the learning of God, now listen to this, the learning of God is included in the worship of God. That's why we spend a large amount of time in the study of God's Word. This is part of worship. As one commentator wrote, know the knowledge of God and His Word helps stimulate worship. Worship is to be in spirit and in truth. And perhaps at times we should reverse the order. Maybe we should spend more time in the beginning in the instruction of the Word to be motivated even into our worship. But they go hand in hand. The study of the, of the Word of God is actually worship. Women are suited for learning of God as much as any man. However, that was not the common sentiment of Greek culture at the time of Paul and Timothy. William Barclay writes, The respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appeared on the street alone. She never went to any public assembly. But first century Judaism was a little better. Although not barred from the synagogues, women were not at all encouraged to be there and to learn. Often rabbis refused to instruct women, likening it to casting pearls before swine. But the Spirit of God led Paul to open the gates wide for all to come and learn of Christ. All to come and learn of Christ. How then are women to learn? It says in silence with all submission. Or learn quietly with all submissiveness. Silence or quiet here is very important to understand. Acts chapter 21, beginning with verse 40, we read, When he had given him permission... 
Paul standing on the stairs, and this is at the point when there has been essentially a riot, and Paul has been brought into the custody of the Roman uh, soldiers there. And Paul is standing on the stairs, and he motioned to the people with his hands. And when there was a great hush, a silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. This quiet is a word used in verse 11 for how women are to learn. One of the commentators says, Paul is telling women to give their ministers the same undivided attention that he himself received when he spoke in Jerusalem. You see, that it's not an oppressive thing by any means. Coupled with quietness is submission or subjection. Subjection simply means to be obedient, to yield to authority. Subjection is another word that the proud neck of man has difficulty bending to. Yes, no. Isn't that true? We don't like to be told that we must submit or be in subjection. It goes against our natural flesh. But it is not to be shied away from. In the book of Hebrews, we have three positive descriptions of being in a position of submission. In fact, these give three very positive responses of those who are in submission. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you. Now, if you were to write that today, people would say, where's the exit door? Nobody's ruling over me here. This says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. Listen, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. It's two ways. Consider them, listen to them, follow their faith, but watch and consider the sincerity, the lack of hypocrisy of those that rule. Verse 17, obey those who rule over. That's, that's worse. Are you telling me I've got to obey these that rule over me? Well, obey those who rule over you. And be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Do you realize this is speaking to men and women in these roles? Same chapter, verse 24. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. As Reichen plainly states, when these two words are put together quietly in submissiveness, they do not describe an unusual style of learning that is unique to women. Rather, they describe the only way a person can learn at all. One of the most precious depictions of the combination of quiet and subjection is found in Luke chapter 10, Verse 38. And please join me in turning your scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke 10, verse 38 through 42. Now it happened as they went that now as it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him, Jesus, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet 
and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered, said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. One thing is needed. The other things are nice, they're helpful, but there is one thing that is needed, that we sit at the feet of Jesus and learn who he is, that we come to him and we listen in quiet submissiveness. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. May that be our hearts. May we pray to have that heart. According to Paul, women must be learners, disciples. Mary learned true doctrine from Christ directly. Christ himself wanted her to know him and how to live for him. She learned by listening, not talking. She heard his word. She sat at Christ's feet, a position of submission to his teaching authority. She learned quietly in all submission. If we truly desire to learn of Christ, it is the only way any of us, men or women, will know him. Then verse 12 Paul goes on, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Here we have the command for a woman not to teach in public worship. Paul does not allow women to teach or have authority over a man in a public church gathering. But in contrast, women should be quiet in a teaching setting. This is a very important command. It's especially interesting, and, and listen to this. This is, this, this, is, this is God's providence in the arrangement of His Word. It's especially interesting when we consider who was likely one of the women in the Ephesian church at the time Paul wrote the letters to First and Second Timothy. We know very little about the, the makeup of that church body, but we know a little bit. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. Paul writes, Greet Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila. A couple. What do we know about them? We go to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, and we're introduced to them. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And Paul came to them, this couple. Now, we move down chapter 18 in Acts to verses 24 and 28. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. So he's got quite a resume there, doesn't he? He's he's an excellent orator. He captures people with the way he speaks. He knows what he's talking about. He understands the scriptures. He's mighty in scriptures. He's eloquent. But, 
He knew only the baptism of John. So he had a flaw. He had a weakness. There were things missing. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And listen to the result. And when he, Apollos, desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He got it. He knew the gospel beyond just that of John. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that amazing? How did he get to that point? A couple took him aside. They didn't rebuke him publicly in the worship service, in the synagogue. They took him aside and instructed him. They explained, it means to teach accurately the way of God. Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside and together taught him. The fruit of their teaching was powerful. Did this woman, Priscilla, have an appropriate and impactful opportunity to teach? By every account of the word, she did. Also, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Yes, women can teach. But Paul gives clear instruction that they are not to teach or exercise authority over a man, but remain silent as a learner under the teaching of the elders in the public worship of the church. Now this was not simply a local church issue at Ephesus. Paul confirmed this when he wrote to the church in Corinth. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. You see, what, as Paul was directing the men to be rid of wrath, to be rid of dissension, to hold up consistent, non-hypocritical hands, there was a weakness there in the men of those very things. And Paul is addressing a weakness among the women. To not be willing to quietly listen. To be orderly. To submit themselves. He's not saying that the men don't have to do these things also. But he's saying that the women in these churches have been out of line. And in fact, if you look at this, most of the men should follow this as well. There's a place for those who are to teach. And those who, who have been put in that position by God. I want to to point out something here that sometimes comes up. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Are any of you familiar with that verse? I'm sure you are. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Sometimes this verse has been used to negate Paul's command in verse 12 and to assume that all leadership roles in the church are available for men and women. But reading this verse in context, or in other words, reading it with the understanding of the surrounding verses, you can see what its intended application is. Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3.
Beginning with verse, let's start with verse 22. And think, if you will, what is Paul's intention as he writes? But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and the heirs according to the promise, the purpose of those scriptures. Let me tell you what Robert Sasse's analysis is. He says the interpretive question in Galatians 3.28 is, what is the distinction between male and female which is overcome in Christ. To phrase it another way, in light of the Apostle's statement, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, what is the oneness which male and female share in Christ? We would like to suggest that the answers to these questions do not concern the functional order between man and woman at all. Rather, the issue, as in other, the other two pairs mentioned, and what were they? Jews and Greeks, slaves and freemen, The issue concerns one's spiritual status before God. We are all equal before God in what Christ has done. Equality does not equal the sameness in roles. The women of the Ephesian church were to demonstrate their submission to the Lord's design of the church by not exercising authority over the elders or the preacher teachers. As one commentator explained, it does not mean that women do not have spiritual gifts in the area of public speaking and leadership. The issue is where they exercise those gifts. Where does this take place? End quote. Where they do not exercise them in the New Testament is as pastors and teachers or elders. Nor do we find any authors of any New Testament books to be women. There is no record of a sermon or teaching of a woman in the New Testament. There are different roles that God has given men and women. Now after making this authoritative command, which was certainly not done in a vacuum, but likely in a very hostile environment, don't by any means think that Timothy almost has this battle won and that he has the majority on his side. This was a battle and this would not have been accepted well. But as soon as Paul makes this, he gives two reasons for his command that women not teach or exercise authority over men in public worship. Reasons for the command not to teach. The first is the creation. The biblical law of primogenitor. Verse 13 reads, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's reason is because Adam was created first by God, then Eve by God, from Adam. There is a role and dependency communicated in the method and sequence of God's creation. Now popular among many 
is the view that the subordinate role of the woman is a corruption of God's original perfect design. It, it was corrupted as a result of the fall. It reasons that if the effects of the curse were reversed through Christ, then such roles of submission and headship should also have ended. But Paul first establishes these roles by God's design in the order of original creation, not as a result of the fall, but before the fall. Paul gives a parallel explanation to this one in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. This is sometimes called, as I mentioned earlier, the law of primogeniture. It's an ancient biblical law giving the firstborn son the place of spiritual responsibility for the family. You may not have heard that term or that title, but we were acquainted with this. There is the firstborn, and they are given a title and authority within the family, even within the sense of worship. Riken again says, He may or may not have been more talented or more beloved than his siblings, yet the eldest son inherited command of resources and the responsibility of leadership in the home and in worship. He became head of the household. So too Adam was God's first formed son. The fact that he was made first was not an accident of chronology. It was part of God's best plan for humanity. The man named Schreiner, Thomas Schreiner adds, the prescription on women teaching men then does not stem from the fall and cannot be ascribed to the curse. Paul appeals to the created order, the good and perfect world God has made to justify the ban on women teaching men. It was not part of the curse. It was not a failure. It was part of God's plan from the beginning of creation. Then he follows up. Paul follows up support and it comes from the fall and the effect of deception. Verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Adam did not experience deception in the fall of man. On the contrary, Eve did, and this was the pathway into her sin. Please turn with me. Let's go back to this story in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 verses 1 through 6. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat, if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Hendrickson wrote, Eve's fall occurred when she ignored or divinely, her divinely ordained position. Instead of following, she chose to lead. Instead of remaining submissive to God, she wanted to be like God. 
She, not Adam, was indeed deceived or deluded. Eve was indeed deceived, but Adam was not deceived. Of course, this cannot be taken absolutely. It must mean something of this order. Adam was not deceived in the matter in which Eve was deceived. She listened directly to Satan. He did not. She sinned before he did. She was a leader. He was a follower. She led when she should have followed. That is, she led in the way of sin when she should have followed in the path of righteousness. Now, please understand, this by no means makes Adam less culpable than Eve. Adam intentionally chose disobedience toward his creator. He sinned, as some write, with his eyes wide open. One commentator said, Adam's willful disobedience hardly recommends him for pastoral ministry. God holds Adam responsible for the fall into sin. He confirms this as he begins his questioning in the garden with who? He doesn't go to Eve, he goes to Adam, the responsible one, and he begins to query him about what has just happened. Adam's responsibility is reconfirmed by God in the inspiration of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. Over and over again, it speaks about Adam's failure, his offense, causing men, all mankind to fall. And the final analysis The man is not placed in the role of leadership in the church because of his accomplishments, his skill, or his spirituality. Paul's prohibition of women teaching and having authority of men in the church comes down to God's sovereign design and creation. And it's by no means by the man's merit. It was God's choice. It was his decision. And then in this final verse, We find God's hope, I believe, through the role of the woman. This is a a difficult verse with many different interpretations. Verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Very intriguing. What does it mean? Good question. Not a lot of consensus. Let me give you a couple, couple of thoughts. Because of the thoroughly established fact of Scripture that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we know that this does not mean that women are saved eternally from death and hell by giving birth to children. Childbearing does not grant one salvation. But perhaps some more common interpretations include women will be saved or preserved physically as they go through the birth of children. But we know this would only be true in a very general application. For while a majority of women survive childbirth, many, many do not. Even Rachel, the wife of Jacob of the Old Testament, died during the birth of her son Benjamin. Another interpretation, although a woman, Eve, although a woman Eve initiated the events of the fall, women may be preserved from that stigma through childbearing. The pain associated with childbirth was the punishment for the woman's sin, but the joy and privilege of childbearing delivers women from the stigma of that sin. And yet that too would be very generalized and it would eliminate many women from being a part of that hope that comes. I don't, I don't think that's what's being said here. A final possibility that seems most appropriate to me 
takes into consideration that in original Greek, the word childbearing is preceded by a definite article. In other words, it reads, the childbirth. Or, women will be saved through the bearing of the child. Verse 15 may be referring to the birth of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3.15, Yahweh promises salvation through the offspring or the child born of the woman who will crush the devil's head. Let me also say that this interpretation fits well into verse 14. Verse 14 ends with a woman falling into sin, into transgression. But verse 15 plants the flag of hope beginning with the word. Look at that in verse 15. Whatever your translation, it's either nevertheless or but or notwithstanding or however. Nevertheless, she shall be saved. How? If they, and notice that, it goes from singular to if they, if women, continue in faith. And such faith is characterized here by love, holiness, and self-control. It keeps salvation in the realm of the one it belongs to, and that's Jesus Christ. And yet it brings the woman into part of that role of being used by God to see that brought into our existence, the incarnation of Christ. Now in closing, I don't want to miss this opportunity to give a fuller look at the place of women in Scripture. There's many perspectives you could take, but I want to first of all talk about Christ's relationship with women during His ministry. And you'll see a list on your handout there if you're interested in that. Jesus first revealed His Messiahship to a woman. In John 4, 25-26, the woman at the well. Jesus healed women. Jesus taught women, which was contrary to the practice of most rabbis. Women, in turn, ministered to Jesus and His disciples. Many women were gathered looking afar at His crucifixion as His closest men disciples fled for their lives. Several women were on site watching to see where Jesus was buried after His crucifixion. A few of these women also came early the next morning to make final preparation of Jesus' body for burial. A woman was the first to witness Jesus' resurrection. And the same woman was the first to be given the command by the risen Christ to go and tell others of His resurrection. That, to me, is quite a list. God has used women throughout the Scriptures in tremendous privileged ways. Paul, Paul also makes regular mention of women involved in ministry. When he sent greetings in his letters to Prisca, Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Julia, Apphia, Lois, and Eunice. He pleads for the unity of two sisters in the Lord, Euodia and Syntyche, who he had labored with in the gospel in Philippi. He also mentions Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. All this to say, the role of women in the gospel and throughout the history of the church has been indispensable. Yet, the roles of women and men in the leadership of the church are clearly and distinctly different. 
The final word in the scripture this morning is the word self-control. And there's an interesting story that I think illustrates a lot about what we're talking about this morning. It happens in the mission field. Again, Philip Ryken tells this story of a lady by the name of Joan or Joanne Shetler, a former missionary to the Philippines. As a result of Shetler's ministry, many members of the Balangao tribe received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There was a difficulty, however. The Balangao were unwilling to teach the Bible for themselves. And Shetler tried in vain to convince them to preach in their own worship services. They wanted her to do all the teaching because she knew so much more than they did. The problem was not resolved until Shetler began to translate Paul's letter to Timothy. She writes, I continued translating in Timothy with my daddy, who was my adoptive Balangao father. And we came to a verse where Paul says to Timothy, I don't allow women to teach. My daddy didn't bat an eyelash. By that afternoon, after we'd finished work, he said to me, Now what is that we're going to study on Sunday? I thought he was just curious. I didn't know what was on his mind since fathers don't report to their children. So I told him. Sunday morning came, and before I could stand up to start, he stood up and said, My daughter here knows more about this than I do. But we found in the Bible that women aren't supposed to teach men. So I guess I have to be the one. And she writes, and that was the end of my career and the beginning of their teaching. Riken goes on to say, no doubt some people would be offended by what Shetler's daddy did, and perhaps by Shetler's own acquiescence. But God was not offended. He was glorified as he always is. Listen to this. When his sons and daughters trust what the scripture says and submit to his will for the church. And isn't that what we're about? We're seeking to know his will, to trust him and obey what he says. It's not easy. Sometimes it's difficult to understand. And in sharing these things, uh, I by no means think that I've hit the nail on the head on every mark here. I've tried, and I pray that you will be like the Bereans, that whatever I've said, you will take and examine Scripture to see if what Kent said was true, as they did with what Paul said was true. But the Word of God is priceless, and it gives us perfect instruction. And may we walk in His way, men, women, Let's be who God has called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. The specificity of roles is is interesting because there's such a panorama of communication by you, Lord God, in this letter. From spiritual warfare to prayer to conduct in the worship service to heresy. And Lord, you're telling us all these things And I confess for myself that that I'm a mere mortal man and, and dull at that. Lord, may your word sink into us and change us, sharpen us, make us men and women who can proclaim Christ accurately, passionately, boldly to this lost and dying world. Lord, please fashion our church in the ways that we must conform, the way that we must reform to be the church that you would call us to be. May we not be afraid to look and see where we need to make changes. 
that we would be faithful to stand on what you have given to us. And Father, for those who are this morning perhaps wondering, what is this? This strange, these, these commands, this church, this idea of submitting to and having people rule over you. Most of all, Father, I pray that if there's no understanding of you, that you will give men and women lost in sin the Spirit of God, that you would give them a new heart, grant them repentance, and draw them to Christ. Lord, may your seed not fall on ground, that it would be snatched away or be choked out, but may it bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. You are worthy, O Christ, until you return. Please make us faithful. In your name we pray. Amen.